You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. Let me just start off by kind of asking you a question. How do you explain human nature? Okay, now there are basically two kinds of explanations um, that flow, again, from two totally different worldviews. Now, again, we've been kind of talking about worldviews over uh, this summer, uh, and we've been talking about, you know, the way we look at things through a biblical or a Christian worldview versus how we look at things through a secular or a progressive worldview. The secular, non-biblical, progressive, postmodern worldview says that people are born basically good. Okay, they kind of come out of the womb with this good, innocent nature, Meaning our, our inherent nature starts off innocent and good, but certain factors, such as maybe our upbringing, society, environment, oppression, and poverty, those kinds of things kind of cause us to do bad things that really goes against our inherently good nature. Now on the other hand, our biblical Christian worldview says that people are basically born sinful. And theologians call this the doctrine of total depravity, meaning we are all born with a sinful nature, with kind of this propensity to do wrong and not right. David kind of recognized this, I think, when you look at what he wrote in Psalm 51, verse 5, and he says, indeed, I was born guilty. I was a sinner when my mother conceived me. Now again, because of that punishment and penalty, whether it be spanking, uh, incarceration, uh, or even war, is sometimes necessary to control our sinful nature and ensure that righteousness and justice prevails in our culture and in our society. Now during the last several weeks, again throughout the summer, we've been going through this series called We Believe. And what we've been doing in this is we've kind of been looking at different issues of faith, of culture, and looking at those through the lens of those two different worldviews, the the biblical worldview and the secular worldview. And so far we've kind of looked at the Bible, creation versus evolution. Uh, We've looked at the problem of evil. Last week we looked at the biblical view of hell, and today we're going to kind of, you know, continue on that theme because we're going to talk about war and and war can be and in most cases is hell on earth okay depending on the point of view you take war is either always evil and wrong or war is sometimes necessary in the course of human events for justice to prevail now I don't know about you but I know for me growing up as a kid I always had the view that war was always wrong and always evil. It really wasn't until I got into my 20s, I started reading more and more, and I shared that with you over the years. I've just done more and more reading on, on the subject of wars, and my position really started shifting toward the idea that there are times... And there are certain situations where I believe war is necessary in order to prevent evil people or evil nations from continuing and growing unchecked. 
Now, war is a subject that no one can completely avoid. And one of the challenges I like as a pastor, um, I like challenging myself. I like pushing myself to talk about a subject I've never talked about before. I've never talked about the subject of war and what the Bible has to say about this. So for me, this is kind of new territory. A lot of this are not new thoughts, but with a lot of you, this is new territory um, with you. Because, you know, um, in all my years of preaching, again, this is the first time I've ever preached on this subject. Now, what is interesting, as as I've kind of researched this, in over 5,600 years of recorded human history, do you realize there have uh, only been 292 years of peace? Isn't that amazing? I mean, incidentally, that could describe a lot of marriages as well. (laughs) Now, in that 5,600 years, 14,532 wars have been fought averaging 2.6 years each, and 3,640,000,000 people have been killed. Now, out of 185 generations, only 10 generations have seen unbroken peace despite the signing of over 8,000 peace treaties. According to Wikipedia, as of July 2017, I didn't realize this, and, and this may come as a surprise for some of you, there are currently 58 wars taking place around the world. The biggest wars right now are are in Afghanistan, Iraq, Mexico, the closest one to the United States. That's the Mexican drug war, Syria, and Turkey. Another interesting thing is the vast majority of wars currently being fought are on the continents of Asia and Africa. And I'll let you take a stab at what the uh, predominant religion of those two continents are, and it'll tell you everything you need to know. If you hold to a secular postmodern view of human nature, then basically the problem is, is that for every one of these 14,532 wars, they all have been wrong. This view basically holds there is no war ever fought that discussion, deliberation, and diplomacy could not have averted by simply appealing to the goodness of the human heart. Now, you may remember our former president, Barack Obama, and former secretary, Hillary Clinton, had a term for this. And they called this smart power. And what they meant by that was that all conflict could be resolved through conversation, persuasion, sanctions, and negotiations. Now, I've even heard people that advocate, if we would just be nicer and more loving towards those involved in ISIS, then eventually they would cease from all their evil atrocities. Now, the biblical worldview of war is radically different. In the Bible, 1,400 years of recorded history are found, and 313 wars are mentioned. So I don't believe God leaves us clueless as to what he thinks concerning war. There's a fascinating verse in 1 Chronicles 5.22 that says this, and I got this wrong on your outline. How many of you hate autocorrect? 
Ah, oh, it drives me nuts. Sometimes it turns your words into something you didn't, you didn't intend to. So it, it, the scripture says, for many fell slain because the war was, not as, was of God. Now that's fascinating to me because is it possible for the God of love and the God of peace and the God of mercy to also be the God of war? Is it possible that the same book that says blessed are the peacemakers could also condone war in certain circumstances? Now let me just establish two facts at the very beginning. First, moral people want peace. I believe that. Good moral people want peace. And the second fact is moral people hate war. Good moral people hate war. And I believe this is true whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, whether you hold to a biblical view or a secular worldview. No one in their right mind wants anything but peace, and nobody in their right mind would love war. Am I clear on this? I don't want anybody going out of here calling me a warmonger or, you know, that I'm advocating for war. I just, want to, I just want to set that foundation, get that in place. Because, see, the problem is peace isn't always possible. How many of you have discovered that in relationships, in life? Peace is not always possible. Paul alluded to this in Romans 12, 18, where he says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now again, notice, if it's possible, live at peace. As much as it depends on you, live at peace. So there's really only one conclusion we can draw from that, is it's not always possible to live at peace with other people. Because you know what, sometimes it doesn't depend on you to be at peace you, you want it, but maybe the other person or party doesn't. I read about a short, small man who was very mild-mannered, and he was going and sitting in a bar. A big bully had a little too much to drink, got up, walked over to him, and chopped him across the neck and knocked him right to the floor. The man lying there looked up at him, and the big guy said, that's karate. I got it in Japan. The small guy being mild-mannered, not wanting any trouble, just simply got back up and sat on the stool. Ten minutes later, this big bully came back over to this guy, picked him up, threw him over his shoulder and said, that's judo, I got it in Japan. This time the man didn't say anything, just got up and left. About 30 minutes later, he came walking back into that bar, walked up behind this big bully and cracked him over the head and knocked him to the floor and said, that's crowbar, I got it at Sears. Now see, just as it takes two people to make war, the same is equally true. It takes two people to make peace. So just what is the Christian worldview concerning war when peace is not an option, when peace is not possible? Historically, there really have been three basic views that Christians have held regarding war. Some Christians believe uh, to go to war and actively participate in war is one, either, either never right, uh, B, always right, 
and C, sometimes right. Now again, there are actually three uh, words to describe these views. Uh, the first one is, is known as pacifism, okay? This is the belief that it is never, ever right under any circumstance and no situation for a Christian to go to or support war. There is no reason at all that can ever justify going to war and no Christian should ever participate. That's one view. The second view is known as activism. And this view states that the Christian is duty bound. We are obligated to obey the government. If the government says go to war, we always go to war. We never question it. We always participate in war. Whenever the government says a war ought to be fought, no questions asked. This view basically says, if the government says a war is right, then it must be right. The third view is selectivism. This view states that Christians should support and participate in a war when it is just. Now basically, again, there are really three criteria to a just war. When that war is fought to either, number one, protect innocent people... Punish evil, and third, promote justice. You can probably tell from my title that I hold to the third view. My title's probably a dead giveaway. I'm not asking the question, is there a time to go to war? But when is it? When is it time? When is it the right time to go to war? Because even though we've not, you know, had war on these shores, we know that we do not have a shortage of enemies in America. I mean, we've got Russia, China, uh, we've got ISIS. I mean, we've got, we've got plenty of nations and people out there that would love to come to these shores and wage war. So when is it time? When is it right to go to war? I base my worldview on three truths that come from Scripture Specifically, Romans chapter 13. So if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to get that out. Open that up to chapter 13. And there you're going to find these three principles listed there. First, God has given authority to government to execute justice. Okay? I want you to listen to Romans 13 beginning in verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority or no authority exists except or beyond God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior. You recognize that? If you're being good, you don't have to worry. Yeah. If you're doing right, in most cases, you don't have to worry. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God. These rulers... That God has put in you. Paul says, for for they are a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the ones who practice evil. 
There are two words that I want to specifically, I want you to specifically note in that passage. One is the word authority and the other word is sword. God has given, he has mandated authority to government specifically to protect its people, to punish wrongdoers, and to promote justice. Do you know that our founding fathers really understood that? Do you remember the preamble to the Constitution? It reads like this. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the general defense. I want you to notice the three purposes that are listed immediately at the forefront of the beginning of the preamble. The government. God has ordained the government to promote justice. That's what our, our, our founding fathers understood. This is what they believed. That's why they wrote this the way they wrote it. They believed that, that, that the government that God was establishing here in America, one of their purposes was to promote justice, to punish evildoers. Do you realize that is how we ensure domestic tranquility? We punish those that are doing wrong. We punish those that are doing evil and protect the people from threats both within and abroad, which is, again, why we provide for the common defense. If you go on to read sections uh, 8, clauses 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16 of the Constitution, you'll find that our founding fathers also recognized the authority of the government to declare war, to raise and to support armies, to provide and maintain a navy, to provide for a militia to execute the laws of the nation, suppress insurrections, and repel invasions. Again, this is all very fascinating to me. I don't know about you, but I'm enjoying myself. Now, again, when this document was written, America had just come out of the Revolutionary War. And I can guarantee you, I can assure you, our founding fathers were weary. They were tired of war. War was the last thing they were wanting or looking for. Yet our founding fathers realized that war is not only sometimes a necessity, but that God has established and he has given government the authority, the power to wage war when it is necessary. According to the passage we just read in Romans 13, the governing authorities. Again, Paul calls them God's ministers that bear the sword in order to punish the evildoer. The Roman sword, again, it was an instrument of war, punishment, and death. The apostle Paul makes it very plain that lawful governments are God's representatives when he is given authority to execute justice, to punish criminals, and to wage war. So when an official of the state uses deadly force to protect human life, Paul says he is inflicting God's wrath and punishment upon the evildoer. Do you recognize that? Do you see that? Do you understand what is happening there? That is true whether it is of a policeman who is defending us against a criminal or a soldier defending us against an enemy. If it results in death, God does not consider what that person has done as a personal act of vengeance. 
But God sees it as an act of divine justice and God's judgment as long as it is done in the capacity and under the proper biblical authority of government. That's why Paul writes this in Romans 13. Again, it's just really tempting to want to just race through all of those verses there. But you got to stop and think, what is Paul talking about here? He's talking about the proper role of our government as it pertains to our world, of which we are a part of. So what does this mean? Again, there are times when war is indeed the lesser of two evils. Now, again, growing up, uh, I, I, I remember, you know, uh, the, the history lessons on the bombing, you know, of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And, and, and again, as a kid, I just thought, man, this just seems so unnecessary. I mean, this, in, in my thinking, I could not justify, I could not come up with any reason why I thought this should have been done. And so, you know, I just remember reading about that decision to drop the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and then three days later on Nagasaki in Japan, and it really brought about the end of World War II. And it was believed, uh, as I kind of again began to read and began to educate myself, uh, it was believed that more lives would be saved than lost by using the bomb. I'd never thought of that. The president at that time, President Truman, he explained his rationale in a letter dated December 12, 1946. And here's what he wrote. He said, I have no qualms about it whatsoever for the simple reason that it was believed that the dropping of uh, more than two of these bombs would bring the war to a close, which it did. He went on to say the Japanese in their conduct of the war had been vicious and cruel savages. And I came to the conclusion that if 250,000 young American lives could be saved from slaughter, the bomb should be dropped, and it was. The cities on which the bombs were dropped were devoted almost exclusively to the manufacture of ammunition and weapons of destruction. Totally changed my perception of how I saw that act of war. Again, there are times when certain things pertaining to war are appropriate, just as there are times when it is inappropriate. Solomon recognized this in Ecclesiastes 3.8. He said, there is a time for war and there is a time for peace. And so yes, there are times when it is wrong to fight, but there are times when it is right to fight. And all through the Old Testament, you'll find example after example where God literally commanded his people to go to war. I mean, you look at some of the greatest biblical heroes of the Bible, Joshua, David, Gideon, Samson. These were all warriors. They were all soldiers. They all went to war at God's command, and government has been given the authority by God to do this when it is necessary, which leads to the second point. Government has a right and a responsibility to defend its people. Listen again to Romans 13, 4. Government is there to serve God for your benefit. That's the role of government. Now again, it doesn't always do that. It doesn't do that perfectly. Obviously, we can sit here and air a huge laundry list of the ways that government has failed and the ways that government has not benefited people. But again, biblical, proper government authority should be to your benefit. He goes on and says, if you break the law, however, you may well have fear. 
He, the government, does not bear the sword for nothing. Again, here's what Paul says. He is God's servant. Think about that the next time you're dealing with the government. Again, I know it's not always pleasant. Doesn't always work out the way maybe we think it should. But look at the government, and and you need to see them. They're God's servant, an agent of justice to bring punishment on the wrongdoers. Again, this is an important principle to learn, not only about war, but again, just about your own individual life. When God gives you the authority to do something, it is your responsibility to exercise that authority when that authority is necessary to carry out the will of God. Pastor, that was a mouthful. Yes, it was, so I'm gonna say it again. When God gives you authority to do something, it is your responsibility to exercise that authority when that authority you have been given is necessary to carry out the will of God. And so there would be times for a government to be out of the will of God if it didn't go to war. Now again, sadly we just live in, and we're just immersed in a politically correct culture. And we're just kind of in this age of tolerance. And again, what I'm about to say, because of that, it's just going to sound like heresy, but I'm going to say it anyway. There are things worse than war. I can assure you, 72 years ago, World War II was not the worst thing that could have happened to this world. The passage we're studying in Romans 13 gives the responsibility of both the government and the governed And we can see that one of the basic purposes of human government is to restrain evil. Listen again to verse 3. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. Now to this point, I need to make a very crucial distinction. God has given certain responsibilities to government that he denies to individuals. Okay, Got to understand this. There are certain responsibilities God has given to the government that he has not given to certain uh, individuals. It is wrong to assume that the rules which govern my personal ethics should also govern the ethics of the state. Now conversely, the rules that God has given to govern the actions of the state are not necessarily the rules that govern individual lives. For example, let me just give you an example to make this a little bit more understandable. The Bible makes it very plain that we should not resort to violence to resolve personal conflicts with uh, our neighbor or other individuals if possible, okay? In Matthew 5, we're commanded individually to love our enemies. Pray for those uh, that do evil against us. But God never commands anywhere in the scripture for government to love our enemies. No, seriously. The, the, the role of government is not to love our enemies. The role of government is to protect us to protect our nation from enemies, from evil. God has given individuals responsibilities that he does not give the government, and God has given the government responsibilities he does not give to individuals. Does that make sense? Good, Jim got it. So that raises the question again, when is it the right time to fight? 
When is it the right time for the government to exercise its authority to fulfill its responsibility to use a sword? As I already stated, there are basically three conditions. First of all, the government has a responsibility to go to war if it is necessary to protect innocent people. Proverbs 18.4 says, It is wrong to favor the guilty and keep the innocent from getting justice. The government, it's one of the institutions that God works through to promote, to establish justice and righteousness. Everybody wants peace, but peace can never be bought at the price of justice because peace at any price is not peace. It is appeasement. War is certainly justified when innocent people need and should be protected. Think about it. It is the duty of the state to use deadly force if necessary to protect its citizens from evil from within, then it has to be right for the government to protect its citizens from evil from abroad. How inconsistent would it be for a country to have a police force to protect its people from evil within, but not an army to protect its people from an even greater evil from abroad? That's not consistent. Oh, we'll have a police force, but we don't need an army? It's also right to fight, to punish evil and wrongdoing. And I think that's why a Christian can actively serve as a, a police officer and a Christian as a, and a soldier as, as a Christian. Again, some of our greatest soldiers in history have been tremendous Christians who love God with all their heart. It is also right to fight to promote justice. Whatever else God is, and, and, and we, we sang about that. We, we affirm that in worship today. God is a God of justice, and God is a God of righteousness. God wants justice to flow through this world like a mighty river. Do you believe that? I do. God wants his justice, his righteousness to flow like a mighty river through this world. And there are times where God uses people and military strength to accomplish that. There are times when the only thing that can promote justice and see that justice is done is war. Thirdly, I'm almost done here. The government have an accountability to support the government. Romans 13:1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities for there is no authority. Okay? No authority is established except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Also, Romans 13, 5, therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. Now, again, this, this does not contradict Jesus' teaching that we ought to turn the other cheek or, or uh, not resist the one who is evil. As he said in Matthew 5, 39, keep in mind that all through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, again, is speaking to individual believers, Okay? If we are wronged or we are threatened verbally, we should be willing to suffer the wrong, not seek vengeance. And only in extreme circumstances should we exercise our right to defend ourselves, although we have a right to defend ourselves. On the other hand, if our neighbor has been attacked or wronged, love demands that we fight on their behalf or protect and help them at any cost. So I'll say this with all due respect, and there may be those of you here that just adamantly disagree with me. Um, that is your privilege to be wrong. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> if we were intended as followers of Christ to be absolute, complete pacifists, 
All God had to do was give a direct, specific command, principle, or example in Scripture to that effect. But the truth is, there is none to be found. If it is not immoral for a country to exercise its right to go to war and use deadly force to protect innocent people, to punish evildoers, and to promote justice, then it cannot be immoral for someone to participate in that war if he or she is acting on behalf of the government. Put simply, if the war is a just war, according to the revelation of God's word, and according to these three principles we've laid down from scripture, then it is not immoral to participate and support the government. If being a policeman is not immoral, unbiblical, or unchristian, then being a soldier for your country cannot be immoral, unbiblical, or unchristian. Let me hasten to add, I am not saying that all governments are equally righteous. I'm not saying that all wars are equally just. As believers, we have a responsibility if we are convinced in our hearts that a war is unjust or ungodly or unbiblical to say to our government and to resist if we are willing to suffer the consequences. That's exactly what Daniel did. When he was asked to do things he felt were biblically wrong, it went against the revelation of God. It's exactly what the apostles did. You'd better make sure it is not your opinion or your preference not to go to war that you can honestly say based on the revelation, the truth of God's word, that you think a particular war is wrong. The toughest part for those of us who are Christians who do hold a biblical worldview is that even in the middle of a war, we can never forget who we are. I love this quote from William Temple, and he said it best. He said, we Christians in war are called to be the hardest task of all, to fight without hatred, to resist without bitterness, and in the end, if God so grants it, triumph without vindictiveness. I love that. Let me say that again. We Christians in war are called to the hardest task of all, to fight without hatred, to resist without bitterness, and in the end, if God so grants it, triumph without vindictiveness. Even while we fight, we're to pray for our enemies. Even as we fight, we're to pray that somehow God would even use war to change the hearts of our enemies and turn them toward him. The video kind of ended with this challenge. I'm going to end with it again. Every day we're living in a war that is going on around us. It's going around the world. But there is really another and maybe a a greater war being waged. And that is the war that has been going on since the beginning of the human race. It is the most important war that has ever been or ever will be fought. It is the war that is going on for the souls of men and women between God and Satan. Even as I speak. The devil is trying to pull people away from God and it is our job as God's people to reach out and try to pull them back toward God. If you've never ever opened your life, if you're here this morning, you've never ever opened your life or your heart to Jesus Christ. The Bible says you are in a war right now with God. What you need to do is you need to make peace with God. The last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation says God is going to end this world with a war. There's one thing that is true about every war that has ever been fought, including this one. You have to choose sides. You have to decide where you're going to stand. 
In a war, you have no option to just sit idly on the fence. If you have never said yes to Jesus Christ, I want you to understand you are in a war with God and it is an unnecessary war. The good news is, is that God has already signed his half of the peace treaty in the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, when he died for you and I upon the cross. We can make peace with God today by just accepting the free gift of his salvation, the forgiveness of our sins that was secured by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that is why we can say even the middle in the middle of a subject like this, that Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. Amen? And I know some of you this morning, and I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back up here. I know some of you this morning, you may be kind of in your own personal war uh, today. Some of you are in marriages that would resemble a war zone. Some of you, maybe your finances. You're kind of in a, in a war with your finances. Maybe you're in a war at your workplace. You don't get along with your boss. You don't get along with other people. Maybe you're in a war with, with other relatives. Again, it, it is our responsibility if at all possible, to be at peace with all people in whatever situation we find ourselves in. So I just want to encourage you this morning as we come and have the opportunity uh, to just partake of communion. As you take that cracker, as you take that blood, I want, you to, I want you to think about what God has done through his son Jesus Christ and the breaking of his body, the shedding of his blood to bring you and I not only to peace with God but peace with one another. And Jesus said every time we do that, we're to kind of do that with this thought in mind. Thank you, Father, for the broken body of your son, his shed blood, that I can have peace with you. And if that's, as if that's not enough, he also says we can also take that and we can Extend that and, and have peace with others as well. So I just want to invite you this morning, if, you're, if you kind of find yourself in a personal war, I want you just to commit yourselves today as you, as you take communion. Ask God to give you revelation. Ask God to give you strategies for peace in whatever that war is. Again, if it's your finances, ask God for wisdom. I was sharing with somebody last week that asked me to pray for their finances. I'm going to tell you right now, you're, you're, the problem with your finances is, isn't that you, that you don't have enough money. The problem with your finances is you're not spending what you have wisely. And so the revelation that God's going to give you, the wisdom God's going to give you, God's going to begin to, to show you how to cut back on your spending. So a lot of times we think the answer to our financial problems is more money. That just takes you into more problems. You've heard me say this before. If you're stupid poor, you'll be stupid rich, okay? It's just the way it is. If you're foolish with your money poor, you'll be <laughs> foolish with your money wise. And so the answer isn't to give you more money because it's just going to make you more foolish. The answer is to teach you how to live within your means. So for some of you, that may be a war this morning. And, and so as you come to God and looking for peace, God's going to give you strategies of how to resolve uh, your finances uh, peacefully. Amen. Let's stand together this morning. Father, we just thank you so much. Lord, I know that this is always kind of a, a tough subject. And I know there's probably people that wish I wouldn't talk about this, but your word talks about it. So I'm good with that. Father, I just pray, Lord, as we we have lived relatively in this nation in, in, in generations of peace. 
There's not peace, you know, around the world, but Lord, for the most part, we've been able to live at peace in this country. And Father, I thank you for that, Lord, that there's no wars actively taking place uh, on this continent. Father, I just ask, Lord, that you would, uh, again, just help us to see and to understand, Father, those that you have put in authority over us. And God, I know that sometimes it's hard because we really like to, we just like to really, you know, complain about the government. God, yet your word says that they are your servants. And that, God, they're here as instruments of your righteousness. And again, God, we acknowledge they don't always do that perfectly. But yet, God, it is the authority that you have established. So, God, just one thing I pray for us. God, as you would, would help us to see those that are serving in government, God, whether they're Republican, Democrats, whatever, that, God, that, that they're there, God, because you've placed them there for a specific purpose. And, God, we want to we be able to recognize and to honor them as your servants, as, as, again, instruments of your righteousness. So, God, I pray, Lord, that you'll help us just, again, to refocus, to rethink, Maybe to speak differently of those that you've put in authority over us, God, that we would honor them. And in honoring them, we're honoring you. And Father, I do pray, Lord, especially for those two continents, Africa and Asia, God, where there's just a lot of war. God, we just pray, Lord, just for a revival of peace over those nations. And Father, we know the only way that peace is going to come to those, those continents, God, is through the Prince of Peace. So God, as, as I know the house of prayer, they, they pray for this all the time. And God, this morning, we just, again, we, we stand in unity with that, God. And we declare that, that, God, we want peace to flow in those continents. We want your righteousness established in those governments. That those people, the innocent people can be protected. That they can be served. That, God, that there would be justice for them. Father, again, we just ask, Lord, that you would just flow the power, the presence of your Holy Spirit over those governments and those authorities that you have established there. We thank you, God, for the authority that you have established here. And again, God, just help us to honor that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Praise Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.